0: so you think you can belto. I'm Jessica Harper, a soprano and hot beverage enthusiast based in Antwerp.
1: And I'm Jeremy Bolton, a coffee-obsessed lyric baritone based in Munich.
0: (laughs) Jeremy and I have created this podcast to empower emerging artists across Australia and the world with access to the direct knowledge and related experiences of operatic artists and practitioners.
1: We aim to help inform emerging artists with this podcast resource and to hold a mirror to the opera system so that artists can make their own individually informed decisions about auditions, competitions, engagements, and more. You'll
0: hear everything from in depth artist interviews to long form panel discussions on topics concerning emerging artists.
1: Today's episode is an interview with none other than Alexandra Flood. Her full biography is available in the episode description.
0: Welcome, Alexandra. Thank you for coming. Hello. Hello. Thank you for inviting me. Well, we're thrilled to have you and we're thrilled that you're willing to offer all of your expertise to us. So um, can we start with, can you tell us a little bit about your sort of how you got where you are today as a fest singer at the Volksoper in Vienna or soon to be fest singer? Yes. Yes, So
2: I um I've just I haven't signed the contract yet. So, <laughs> so,
1: Should we so when it?
2: this um, no it's fine, it's fine. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure I'm sure that by the time this goes out, um I hope that I will have signed the contract. Yeah. Um we're still yes. um chatting about that. But yes, I I've, I've been asked to uh join the ensemble full time at the Folks Opera next season. Um and mm-hmm. I've been there on what they call a Vertrag, so a residence contract in this current season, which is somewhere between guesting and a fest. And originally I was only supposed to be here for like three and a half months, but as I was, whilst I was here, they asked me to take on three more roles. So I ended up staying almost Brilliant. the whole season. Yeah. And in terms of Amazing. how I got here, you mean like
0: from the beginning? Like yeah, my, as much as you're willing to share or, or maybe like the key, the key experiences that you think propelled you forward to, to where you are now. Yeah, sure. So um,
2: my parents met and fell in love. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, actually, it's kind of their origin story kind of informs a lot of my, my life because they met in country Victoria Phillip Island they're both from Melbourne but they met there they got married there and I was born there I spent the first part of my childhood on Phillip Island which was a wonderful place to have a childhood there wasn't you know like a huge music school in the primary school or anything like that but there was a wonderful local local music teacher who taught me piano and gave me my first sort of experiences so I was having piano lessons when I was like maybe four I think I started and I definitely, my parents really believed in the Suzuki method, which was very popular at the time in Australia. And so I, was, I immediately began really at the very early stages um, with a, a real oral approach to music learning, which meant that I developed a very good ear when I was very young, which I think as a singer has helped me hugely. I had to learn how to actually read music <laughs> much later, which I somehow figured yes. out toward the end of my master's degree, if I'm being honest. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, it just sort of gave me a nice, um, a nice basis for having a really strong oral connection to making music. Um, and then I spent the second half of my childhood in, in the Middle East. And luckily in this small town where we were, there was a, German, a retired German opera singer. And she taught me the fundamentals of breathing and breath support when I was very young I mean I was only singing you know Schubert songs and and occasional Mozart but we spent 45 minutes of every hour lesson doing breathing which was amazing and gave me a very strong foundation and then I studied in uh, Melbourne with Vivian Hamilton at the conservatorium but I just did a diploma of music I didn't do a bachelor so I was studying art and a couple of law subjects and commerce, and then I dropped all of that and just focused on the BA and the music diploma. And then I went and studied journalism at RMIT, but all the while still doing extracurricular music, lots of Estedfords. I joined Opera Scholars Australia, which gave me my first exposure to sort of professional level orchestras and performance opportunities and first time working with conductors and stuff like that, which was great. And then... It was actually whilst I was working as a producer at the ABC on Classic FM that I got the opportunity to sing Musetta in La Boheme in an American summer festival and I had to sort of quit my job and borrow some money from my parents and go to Europe and try it out and, and there was really no looking back and that was 10 years ago that I did that.
0: Wow. That's amazing. So that sounds like you had – I didn't know this. Uh, full disclosure to the listeners, Alex and I have been quite good friends for a number of years. We met in The, the Cunning Little Vixen what feels like 100 years ago with Pacific Opera. I think it was 2014. 15. Um, that, I didn't realise – 2015, okay. I didn't realise that you had – you were leading a double life with a law degree in journalism and stuff as well. Do you think that stuff has also been really useful for yeah. you in – yeah, definitely. What, what so do you think, I don't you, have you, you got a law. Well, so
2: I don't have a law degree. I just took some law subjects. I think I took mm. principles of business law because that was one of the commerce-related subjects, which I actually really like, and torts randomly. But um, I do think that look, I'm a big believer in a classical education, and by that I mean like, <laughs> you know, maths, the the languages, English and some kind of thing that's gonna teach you logic and critical thinking, like ideally philosophy. Because I think that in classical singing, you know, there's a lot of things that have to develop naturally biologically before you're ready to take on opera repertoire. And there's a lot to be said for spending your early 20s or your late teens growing your mind. And I think the critical thinking skills that I developed through my undergraduate and graduate education outside of music really helped me you know even just today we're having lunch with the cast and conductor and director of the Merry Wives of Windsor and we're having this really in-depth debate about you know the meaning of some of the messaging that we were conveying and and what was happening in 1918 in Europe at the time when we chose to set the piece and I was able to meaningfully participate in that conversation because of my education and even just the fact that I study 20th century history has informed the way that I approach opera, my ability to be sensitive to cultural issues that my European colleagues are aware of that maybe maybe in Australia we don't have immediate exposure to the reality of, you know, what it was to be a 20th century European or, you know, American. I, I think it's there's a lot to be said for those early experiences. And then also in a more concrete way, the media training ha- helped me hugely, because it gave me a sense of confidence in doing interviews. It also gave me you know, the ability to use language to convey the message that I wanted to convey. And whether that was in an interview or in a job interview setting, you know, like an audition setting, when sometimes I've done interviews where journalists have asked me questions that I didn't want to answer and being able to skillfully steer the conversation into what I'm wanting to promote, you know, those kind of things. Thank God. Everything
0: superpower.
2: (laughs) I had one interview by a Dutch tabloid and I went in and I very arrogantly took my then young boyfriend into the interview with with me and I was like, why don't you come and just observe and you'll learn a thing or two about how to do an interview. And, of course, the tabloid journalist took this as an opportunity to just grill me about my personal life and asked him, like, is it hard to have, like, a diva girlfriend? And it was awful and it was so hilarious. And the article spoke nothing at all about the show and it was amazing. So I learned my lesson.
0: (laughs) I'm not foolproof. (laughs) Yes. You know, they'll tell if they can take one, one thing and run with it that yeah. will sell copies, they will. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I've experienced that too. I, I once did an interview for someone and the the article ran with a point that I'd made totally off the cuff, not important, not related at all to the singing. And they ran with that and wanted to write the whole article about that one issue. But thankfully, I got to see it before it went. Yeah. So you've talked a lot about these, these wonderful business skills that you've picked up along the way. Would you say that those are more of an integral part of your success? Or would you say that you're your language acumen and how hard you work on that side of your career as well has been more more useful?
2: Yeah it's a it's a really good question because I think in many ways it would be easy for me to say yes the fact that I speak German fluently has objectively led to more successful professional outcomes however I would say that The fact that I speak German or the fact that I'm maybe culturally aware of what it means to live in Europe or Germany or whatever that is doesn't necessarily lead to like getting hired it improves my experience right so like if I'm in a space where there's a German stage director who prefers to speak German which you know is normal in in that person's own country if I'm able to engage with that director on a you know, intimate artistic level because we can understand one another linguistically, that's going to enrich my experience as a performer. And that does inform what I consider to be a successful role debut or a successful personal experience. I don't know that my German skills have necessarily led to more employment, except for the Zingspieler. That's definitely true, like um and that kind of... And the show that I did that I premiered on Monday night, the Merry Wives of Windsor. We did that in German and I had a monologue. And the fact that I speak German obviously meant that I got that role. But I don't know that in a casting environment, like in a cattle call audition, they're not going to really even know that you speak German. You know, it's something, it's a skill set that's going to improve your personal experience, which then will lead to success because you will be more confident because you will be more, uh, like a- able to enjoy yourself because you'll be able to advocate for yourself um, because you'll be able to communicate with the casting department, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I would say it's maybe it does play into the success, but maybe in a more nuanced way, not in a sort of one-for-one way.
1: Gotcha. Yes, that makes total sense. And um, just let's um, go into that, Alex, if you don't mind. So, for example, like uh, German for Australians is something that all the singers have to deal with at some point or another. You can learn Italian. It's probably a lot easier to pick up. I found that. French is like a whole other thing because we speak totally different to the French. (laughs) And then uh, with German, we've had difficulty collectively as Australians because we have done away with grammar and learning what grammar does in, you know, primary school and high school. So, just on that matter, because I'm dealing with this at the moment, getting my German better as I prepare to go in to, to my house and things. And so could you sort of say to people here who, who are aspiring, who are looking to come over, of course you've had this education that has exposed you to different things. How could someone who has gone straight into a Bachelor of Music and done their masters and done all this, how, how can they start informing themselves about things without Traveling traveling to Germany and things like that. Hmm. What I think reading, that, what listening, that sort of stuff.
2: You know, Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche made the argument that I very, very much subscribe to, which that which is that language informs thought. Yeah, not the other way around. So he posits this idea that you actually need the words in your mind or in your mind's eye, in your conscious mind, in order to communicate a a concept or a thought. And it's counterintuitive because a lot of us think, no, no, you know, our thoughts are pre-linguistic and everything, but it's that feeling of, oh, you've got like that, that word on the tip of your tongue and you just can't quite think of it. And until you remember the word, you can't articulate the concept that you're trying to describe. And the extension of that is that, we have slightly different identities in different languages, and I fully agree with mm. that. I have like a varied personality in, in German and in French and in Italian and in English, and that's that's cultural linguistic as well. It's not purely language, but but I, I definitely think that what I mean by that is if you invest in learning to speak German, you will start to appreciate some of the cultural nuances of what it means to communicate in a German space. For example, in Germany and in German language, they use the passive voice a lot, right? So in, in Australia, if I made a mistake or I did something that wasn't expected on stage or something like that, and someone brought it up, I might, I would say in English, Oh, the director told me to do it like that. Right? In Germany, I would, it would be polite and normal to formulate it as it was told to me that I should do it that way, right? So es wurde mir gesagt, oder mir wurde gezeigt, or this kind of, and that's called a passive voice. And it's very important to know how to use that passive voice in German, because you could, of course, say in German, ja, der, der Direktor, der Regisseur sagte mir, you know, the director told me. Of course, that, that exists as a grammatical form. But it's not the way that conflict conflicting issues are discussed in a german context and so like even that learning something like that is going to enrich your experience once you're on the ground there because you'll hear when colleagues are use the passive voice uh, when it makes sense you know maybe politically or in a space where they're unsure of um, maybe how much they want to expose what's been told to them or who they want to, you know, so it's really interesting. And those are things that you'll pick up just purely by learning the language and and by exposure to that. I would also say reading, like, the general knowledge of my colleagues about, like, when important revolutions happened or, like, you know, important political leaders. Like, everyone in Europe knows the surname of the current leader of Turkey, for example, You know, and I think being informed about what's happening politically, what's happening socially and what happened over the 20th century in Europe will definitely enrich your experience in a theatre, because almost every show that I work with that I've done or every director that I've worked with contextualises their work within some sort of socio political framework, you know, and so just feeling like and that that comes from reading, you know, read, read books, read novels, read classic German literature, read Dante, you know, um, read Sartre, like get, expose yourself to these, these concepts. And, and I think that that can definitely help if you haven't necessarily had a very broad classical education, doing some self-learning about the history of the world and the history of um, the written word and the history of theatre is definitely a way to enrich, enrich your experience and enrich yourself artistically
1: yeah absolutely yeah I, I think that always always helps. and um yeah that, that's super interesting. so let's um let's go back, Alex, to your sort of timeline just so we can tell tell the listeners sort of how you did things, when you did things, what happened. Um, particularly with regards to when you start tertiary education, did you then you went to Munich to study, I believe, and then Um, and then how you got hired after that. How did that all happen?
2: Mm -hmm. So, right, so I left off when I had that first role in Italy. That was when I I, I was two years out of the con, one year out of journalism school. So I was 22 and I applied, I had a coach in Victoria who said, if you were ever thinking about having a professional career, and you know you're a high soprano. Like now is kind of the time to try and open that door and explore that. If you don't now, like the the window will close. You know, for particularly for my va. You know, to t- take those steps. And so I applied to this summer festival, thinking that they would, you know, offer me chorus or something. And then they offered me a lead role. And then as, after a week of being there in Tuscany, you know, rehearsing, I was like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. And so that really changed my focus. I then came home to Australia, like kind of with that Europe bug, like knowing I wanted to get back overseas. Um, also being around, it was an American summer festival, so being around a lot of Americans who were so ambitious, so confident knew exactly what they needed to work on as well, like were very self-aware of like their, you know, areas that needed development and but also really aware of where their skill sets were. And that was really like, wow, like there are people in this field that are so driven and focused. And it wasn't that I hadn't been exposed to that in Australia. I just think that I wasn't ac- actively I wasn't active in a milieu of young singers that were working professionally in Australia because there just weren't many of us and there wasn't much work. So um, that really kind of put the fire under me and I came back and decided to enter some competitions and I won the Opera Foundation for Young Australians Ames Award and the um, accompanying secondary scholarship. So that took me to Europe in 2013 to do Ames, which was amazing. And that's where I met my first agent um it's like sounds like that's where I went my first husband you know it's like my first agent my first of many <laughs> but he really oh, supported I love me. that for you <laughs> he, he really supported me through those um early years of my career which was wonderful and we're still you know friends um so and it also again like that first ex- exposure to professional orchestras to professional conductors that I then remained in touch with you know for several years afterwards and then at the end of that AIM summer it was 2013 I went to the Salzburg Festival where Siobhan Stagg was a young artist and I just went to like visit her and try and like see some shows and while I was there she said you should audition for the young artist program and I was like what do you mean? Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> what are you talking about? And she was like, no, no. So yes. she called the office and made them make an appointment for me. And I went in, like, I was two hours late because they told me the time in like 24 hour time and I just misread it. Oh,
1: no. <laughs> so I was,
2: so I was two hours late. And We've all
0: done that, though. It wow.
2: was so bad, and I my first ever professional audition, Salzburg Festival, you know, and I I came in and I explained that I'd misread the time, and it was really unlike me to you know be late. I was late today, but that's again <laughs> very unusual. <laughs> oh and... no, by five minutes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, um... far, mate. so far, mates. <laughs> um,
2: and so they were like, "Okay, we'll see you." And so I auditioned and. I remember the casting director and the pianist like turned and looked at one another. Cause I had sung Up first aria and they looked at each other and did this like telepathic communication. And then they turned back to me and he was like, do you know the queen of the night? And I was like, Oh, what do you mean? Because I, I had, I really didn't. Cause you know, I, I hadn't been to much opera. Like my, I'd only done a, a diploma of music in, you know, I didn't have a bachelor. Like I hadn't been going to a lot of opera. My general knowledge of, of the repertoire was very low at this point. And um, so I said, Oh, do you mean the monkey aria? And he's like, What's the monkey aria? And I was like, <laughs> And I was like, You know, like, <laughs> and he was like, Oh my God. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, and like, I thought my like Australian charm would get me across the line, but that was not appreciated. So then um, I said, Look, I, i really i really don't luckily i had seen the magic flute the night before at the opera and so i i said like i you know i can i can try and so they said wait there and they went and got the score and gave it to me and this is like remind you like i cannot read music like i've got no idea they come in gives me the score and they were like can you sight read this coloratura in the first aria of queen of Night? you know that's like so as i And I was right. So the first half went okay because I kind of had it in my ear from the night before. But the coloratura was like, "Ah, ah, ah, ah," and they were like, danke, (laughs) danke, you know. And then I said to them, please give me a chance to learn this aria. Give me 24 hours. I will go and learn it and I will come back and I'll sing this for you properly. And so they were like, okay. Went back to the youth hostel where I was staying with my good friend Lyle the youth hostel, meanwhile, was full, so they'd opened the basement for us and put two air mattresses on the basement in, like, a seminar room that was underground, and they thought we were a couple, and I was like, oh, we're not a couple. So then they they wedged a pinboard between the two air mattresses to give <laughs> us this semblance of privacy. And I got back to the room, and I was like, Lyle, Salzburg Festival's asked me to learn Queen of the Night in 24 hours, and he was like, I got you, babe. I have got you because it was his favorite aria and he was like, okay, we're going to listen to the Dam recording. We're going to listen to the Gruber like, and we sat there for like seven hours overnight, just trying to learn on YouTube. And this is also like 2013. So we were like basically using like dial up internet, you know?
0: Yes. Ba- and back when YouTube had, you know, like three opera videos yeah, and yeah. seven cat videos and that's all it was. Yeah. you know. So I somehow managed
2: probably thanks to that Suzuki exposure, orally to learn the coloratura and went back in sang it the next day nailed the coloratura but fudged the f and the casting director meanwhile just had enough of me and he's like thank you so much bye you know and i I was like no please please i stayed up all night learning this aria this is like please let me do it again and then i did it again and then i nailed the f and then it was just like handshake welcome to the salzburg festival
0: wow That is the most phenomenal story. (laughs) It's crazy.
2: (laughs) You know, just crazy. Like this is – and nothing like that honestly has happened to me since then. And I think, to be honest, like if that happened again today, I don't – like there was something about the fact that I was so young, I was totally inexperienced, so I had no – I had this kind of like almost like nothing to lose cockiness about me, I think, that pushed me through that early um, experience. And, um, and so then I came back this the following... I uh, went back to Australia, um, done, did a couple more competitions and then I came back the following summer, um, did the Salzburg Festival Young Artists Program and then immediately went to Munich and did the, the Masters of Opera at the Hochschule and Theater Academy in Munich, which I... So in that year, in between those two summers, I decided I did need some more training... <laughs> And so decided to do, decided to do a master's. I did go and audition for some of the opera studios, like around the world, like the, all the big ones. And I didn't get in anywhere, which was a bit of a blow to my ego because I felt like, I'm working at the Salzburg Festival, you know? I thought like, oh, I'm 22, my career's made. It's all uphill from here. No, no. So I didn't get into any opera studios here.
1: Yeah. yeah, right. Could you take us back to Salzburg and just tell us what that entailed once you got that position?
2: Sure. So it was absolute madness. Like uh, we worked so hard, like 16 hour days, like it was crazy. And we would go from, so I was in both of the children's productions. Originally I was cast to sing Blonda in one of the kids shows and then the Queen in the other kids show. But then before I got there, they actually cancelled the magic flute, which was devastating, but they replaced it with um, Cenerentola, And then I was walking past... The artist entrance of the opera, and the casting director happened to be there, and he was like, "Alex, do you know Cenerentola? Do you know Clarinda?" And I was like, "I don't even know what these words mean. <laughs> you know, like, I just don't even know." And I was like, "Yes, yes, I, yes, I do. Yes. Why are you asking? You know?" And he was like, "Oh, well, our has had to pull out because her father's ill. Um, sorry, our Clarinda, in Cenerentola." Um, can you jump in? Rehearsal starts in two days. Like, can you, like, just get the role ready? And I was like, yes, I can. Yes, I can. Go back to my, back to my like, student dorm room, like, oh! <laughs> <laughs> Good on and you. I, and I learned it. I learned it in two days. I, like, thank goodness they had incredible music staff in the Young Artist Program. And I was honest with them and I was like, I've said that I know something that I don't know. Um, and they 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 note bashed it with me for 48 hours and then I and then I was fully memorized with um on the on ready to go in rehearsal and that was amazing and there were also like just a couple of nice coincidences like that director um was Swiss and the conductor was French so then rehearsal language suddenly was French and I spoke French so that like was really nice for me because it you know again like just that ease of communication with everyone and that was a really fun experience and I met a director on that show that I've like then worked with a bunch since then and uh so we would do like rehearsals for that in the morning in the afternoon rehearsals for the main stage show I was in Rose and Cavalier on the main stage in a small role and then in the afternoon it'd be like a master class and in the evening we'd be in a concert and it was and then we'd go out all night it was just absolutely wild um but it was a real baptism by fire and fantastic and basically like everyone that was in my class that 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 young artist program year has has like gone on to have like a big career like I think all of us are still full-time singing either at like a very high level or at like a kind of you know normalish level but that's
0: extraordinary yeah it was amazing and it was like really rare Yeah.
2: yeah yeah I mean not not at uni I'm talking well actually at uni as well Everyone everyone from my graduating class is singing professionally, I think, yeah. But um yeah, the Salzburg Festival was amazing. It was such I just, you know, rubbing shoulders with you natrebko know, and, you know, Harry Kupfer and Franz Welzernist and I mean when I say rubbing shoulders like me passing them in the corridor and having a fan be on moment. Um, yeah. That's enough. That's yeah. enough, mate. But it was, it was incredible, and it was incredible to be exposed to such a high level of artistry so early in my career. Like, the first fully professional orchestra I ever sang with was the Vienna Philharmonic, you know. <laughs> <Incredible>. <laughs> which, was, which was wild. Like, it was wild. Like I didn't even know how to – I remember the conductor changed at one point from conducting in two to conducting in one, and I didn't even know what that meant. Like, I didn't know what the gesture looked like to conduct in one. And it oh god it was it was incredible it was such a baptism by fire but but it was great and then it just meant that I was so equipped for what everything that came ahead of that yeah and so after that I went to uni while I was at uni in Munich they were very industry oriented so they they let me go off and do professional work very early in my degree and in fact within the first like month I was cast as the lead in a show with Gardner Platz which was wonderful and that partnered me with um, you know a director that I've worked with many times since then and a whole bunch of other stuff and then I got cast as blonder out of an audition for um Entführung in in Bregenz in the wintertime and then that led to that particular job led to basically all of the work that I have today
0: wow yeah so that was a real make or break moment.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I, I think it was good for me because I had done Blancheon already in this children's version. But even in the kids' version, they hadn't they didn't cut a lot of the Blanchin stuff. So I kind of had the role already under my belt and I'd already done it like at a high-level company. And then this experience in Bregan's was amazing and just a couple of important enough people saw me and that led to me being put forward for a production where they were looking for a very young Violetta in Amsterdam, which I then got cast in, and that was with Lotte de Beer. and Lotte is the new General Artistic Director at the Volksoper here, and that's why I'm here. And Lotte and I have worked, we've done like seven productions together since then, so, or including that. Is that
0: the, the Violetta that you
2: did with the the rock band? Is it that one? So, there. <laughs> Uh, we did one performance of the Traviata at the Lowlands Festival, which is a rock and kind of contemporary music, not contemporary, like pop music festival in, um, in the Netherlands. And I did one performance of Sempre Libera there with a, like rock band. And that was at like 1am. It was so funny. But the, perf- but the version of Traviata we did was with the chamber ensemble with electric instruments, but it wasn't a rock band.
0: Okay, that's so cool. Did it work, would you say, that, that version of, of Traviata? I, I loved it and the
2: idea of it was to try and, you know, we, we, it was set in a really non-traditional space in a kind of warehouse and what was really cool about the set design was the stage and the public like bled into one so it was all just like one big party and that was really cool because when the show ended like we, like in the Act 2 party scene, the, oh, no, yeah, act two party scene. Um, we kind of went into the crowd, and the crowd kind of came on stage, and it was like drinking and singing "Sempre Libera" and oh, sorry, singing "Brindisi" together, and that was amazing because that that was something that was very novel to me, um, you know, and and I think that that was something that was really successful about the show. Um, I I loved it. I you know it had. It was mixed reception because if you try and do something different with Verdi or Mozart, everyone's people are going to get their knickers in a knot, you know. But it was an it was a cool experimental experience for me. And in fact, the composer who arranged that, Moritz Eggart, I've then worked with him a bunch since then. I sang one of his world premieres at the DNO, and um, we did recital together. And I just was involved in the premiere of one of his other world premieres here in Vienna. So yeah, it was a it was a very successful and important production in my career the conductor of that show also booked me for like five more jobs after that yeah I would say that's probably been a theme of my career is that I haven't done a lot of auditions most of my work has come from being hired by the same people again Um, and I think that that's like an important thing to remember is like when you go into a job it's so rare that that door then closes and you never see those people again. Like those people are probably the gatekeepers to further opportunities for you. And, you know, mm-hmm. I don't Is mean you should put you pressure saying,
0: on yourself. Sorry, sorry to cut you off. Um, was that from you saying, hi, um, you know, I'd love to work with you again. I'm available in, you know, September through December next year or stuff, or was it more them approaching you afterwards and saying, Frau Flood, please come back? It- it was
2: more them approaching me, I would say, but I but I will say that that what you're talking about that sort of networking approach, I do that on the job, while before things end, you know, and I also it sounds a bit maybe manipulative or sociopathic, but like I make sure that I'm contributing to the space in a meaningful way, by being authentic. By, cre- by giving the director lots of exciting options to play with as an actor like to, you know by contributing to my colleagues' experience by really well by being really well prepared musically, by being on top of things vocally and and letting that awesome contribution be the thing that leads to more work you know Absolutely. I think that, that that's that's important is like sometimes we get that business mindset on and like oh I must remember at the end of this at the end of this eight weeks, To follow up with the director and it's like yeah but much more important is during those eight weeks to be making a meaningful connection with that director so that they want to work with you again i mostly get hired by directors i have to say by directors who like working with me i also i come with a lot of ideas like i have opinions i have opinions about the show not just about my role but about the piece about what we want to say i have very strong opinions if you know there are racial contexts or contexts sexual violence or stuff like that that I very openly share and will debate with the director you know and I think that that's important to you know not not to be arrogant about it and I always do acquiesce to the director's opinion because at the end of the day they have a kind of global view that I can't have because I'm in the show but I always come with with well researched and 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 strong ideas about what I have to say, and I think that that's maybe why. Of course, some directors don't like that, but that's why I end up keep working with the same people because we share those values.
0: Yeah, that's no, that's fascinating, and you keep hearing, all the time now at the moment that it's it's directors who are, at the end of the day, have the last word for casting things as well. So that's clearly a really excellent thing that you've done you know not you know sort of by accident you know happen to have these great collect uh connections which is really really fabulous Mm. excellent i love that would you say i mean i don't know i was just thinking as well uh because i had coffee with a, a colleague the other the other day and he was talking about how frustrating it was that one of the singers in the show he's doing was always late and didn't know her music and she was you know singing one of the main roles countess and you know I've heard of it whatever and she just didn't know her music and I thought you know I don't hear much else actually from musicians who are working in the industry at the moment like they love to bitch about colleagues who are not being useful <laughs> so obviously it comes across on the other end of the scale as well when you are extremely useful and extremely good to work with so that is fabulous
2: I mean I'm I've definitely it's it's an imperfect science you know I don't sometimes Mm. I've worked with directors who can't stand me you know and I can't stand them or I've worked with conductors who aren't sensitive about balance you know and I have like more of a lighter voice and so that's something that I struggle with um or you know it's it's not I'm not saying that I that I always get rehired always after every job of course not but I try to be authentic to myself and to what my values are. And then, of course, I naturally connect with people with whom my values align and I get rehired by those people. Um, but I'm like, my goodness, you know, I, I the, the, the busier I get in my career, like right now I'm preparing so many things like, the, the amount of time that I have to dedicate to each role does go down and sometimes my preparation does suffer and, you know, I'll come to a rehearsal not as well prepared as I would like to be. I mean, I'm never, like, making mistakes that are, like, you know, grinding rehearsal to a halt or anything like that. It'll be a word here or there. But, like, yeah, I think that preparedness is, is very important. I was humiliated by a teacher early in my career in a group group Class setting for being underprepared, horrifically, <laughs> and it was it was awful at the time. But looking back, I'm I'm grateful that she told me off because I never came back to another experience unprepared like that. Um, was it yeah,
0: public or was it just with other students? It like, was with other students, but it present? was with like a lot. No, no, no,
2: no. But it was in front of like twenty or thirty other students, so it was pretty embarrassing. Yeah. Um. But the look. I think the thing with other colleagues being unprepared, it does happen and it really depends on the house and on the conductor um, what happens. Like I've definitely been, not in shows that I've been in, but I've definitely been like working at a company and like a parallel shows being rehearsed and the Violetta's been fired, you know, because she doesn't know the part, which is like pretty intense. But some, some conductors, and it's usually a conductor who would do that rather than the stage director, but um, some conductors have... You know absolutely zero patience for that and you know i kind of understand and that i've heard of that happening many times and then other companies are more lenient about it or other conductors are more lenient about it and they just feel, believe that things will come together at the end but yeah like you obviously want to be making a good impression and maybe if you come to rehearsal unprepared and you manage to pull it together by the end sure like from the audience's perspective everything's fine but maybe that direct that conductor will remember you next time there's a casting opportunity and be like oh that person was a bit tough yeah. you
0: know so yeah i mean aside from if you t- you know were told that morning hey can you jump in then everyone's going to give you all of the time of day in the world of course but yeah. yes no if you have the time to be prepared then be prepared. jumping
2: jump ins are also really interesting right because sure, like their the audience or the company is going to be forgiving of mistakes, but like a jump-in still has to be good. You know, like people are still paying 400 euros a ticket, you know, like yeah. the, a jump-in still has to be of a very, very high quality. So like a lot of people will say no to a jump-in because they they don't want to deliver something that's subpar, you know.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, that's a really key point. You know, a lot of the people were coming that evening they've organized a babysitter they've paid that babysitter they've gone out and had some dinner you know people are going for entertainment and so as mm. you say the audience as long as you're delivering the audience isn't really going to care but mm. yeah that's no that's definitely a thing people saying no you know it could be an amazing opportunity but i think it was nicole carr who said that what you say no to in your career is just as useful as what you say yes to and just as important which yeah. is yeah do you, so you've been around other singers in particular and other musicians for nearly for over 10 years actually sorry since you started officially working um do you have you noticed any personality traits that you've admired and adapted in your own preparation or work or personality and have you noticed ones that you have not adapted
2: <laughs> <laughs> i don't say any names
0: we don't want to get sued
2: (laughs) (laughs) I'll say two kind of completely opposing things that I I and I think that two things can be true you know we contain multitudes um as what women said I really respect when I meet a colleague who's incredibly humble but incredibly amazing what they do And they don't need the conductor to say good job or the director to say, like, well, you're God's gift, you know. They just have this deep humility about what they're doing. They put the art first. They put the music first. There's very little ego involved in what they do. They're very well prepared. They're supportive colleagues. They're good stage partners. You know, some people, they sing their line and then they're like, dead face until their next line you know <laughs> it's not fun yeah, to yeah. work with that sorry that was just a coincidence yep. that I imitated a tenor sound just then um <laughs> oh yeah
0: totally coincidental <laughs> <laughs>
2: um uh, so 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 I really appreciate colleagues who are like that and I try to emulate that mindset having said that I also really admire colleagues who know their value and don't put up with any bullshit like there's an amazing mm. singer that is in our cast of Merry Wives of Windsor at the moment. Interestingly, she was also at the Salzburg Festival my first summer and we met there. Um, And she's only like a couple of years older than me and she was already a star then in Salzburg. And she's had a huge career. And she has this really amazing sense of self-worth and of the value of her time. And because she is so well-prepared, she is so professional, she's so polished all the time, you know, she, she, when she's in the room, we're not mucking around and wasting time. Like, we're being efficient and we're making art. And she's playful and, and everything. Like, it's amazing. But she's just got this really strong sense of what she thinks she, she is – what she is willing to tolerate, I think, in any given space. And that is also so inspiring. Because I think as Aussies, sometimes we we carry this sort of self-deprecating energy – into professional spaces you know that we're that that kind of you know we grew up in that tall poppy kind of conditioning and uh, you know being told well done you know this is you see you see like an interview with afl players after a match and the journalist is like oh so well done you know you guys on they're like oh yeah you know it's just a lucky day you know the other boys did so well you know it's just like a draw you know just like and it's like no like you st- strategize this game for six weeks by analyzing the videos of the other team. Like, there's a reason you did better. Of course, there's chance involved. But like, you know, and I think that we're conditioned mm. sometimes to be very self-deprecating. And I really had to unlearn that when I came to really? Europe. I really had to unlearn that people-pleasing mindset, that not wanting to rock the boat, not wanting to, God forbid, be labelled a diva, you know. And that Mm. term is really just used to put down people who establish boundaries, healthy (laughs) boundaries for themselves. And so, yeah, I would say those two aspects, I really like colleagues who who are humble and who really exhibit that humility in their practice. And then I also really respect colleagues who know their worth I've just got to be backed up with the actual worth, you know. <laughs> like this Absolutely. this person I'm talking about is lot, an yeah. amazing. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I don't like it if you've got that that sort of confidence or that maybe that real sense of entitlement but you don't you're not prepared or you're not, you know, like it doesn't make yeah. sense. But yeah, I would say those two kind of
0: ends of the spectrum. Yeah, fascinating. How do you find all of the travel, I mean, granted, we've just had a couple of years of very minimal travel. Mm -hmm. Did you enjoy doing, you know, staying in one place for a long time? Because as I understand, you've been freelancing pretty much exclusively for the last Mm -hmm. decade, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, really, uh, really wonderful in many ways, but it also has has its difficulties. Would you would you be happy to speak about your experiences a bit with that sort of your your sort of how, the living arrangements, how you travel, how you manage, exercise, health, whatever?
2: Yeah, I loved the first half of my career. I mean, maybe how long way? <laughs> that means I'm already halfway through. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. I guess my career so far, you know, which has been mm-hmm. wholly freelance. I, I loved it. I loved traveling. I loved being in different countries. You know, Italy, France, Spain, Poland, Germany, Belarus, like Russia, England. Yeah, wow. I mean, I, you know, I I absolutely loved that. I loved the challenge of being in a new culture, new languages. Um, even like different place, places within Italy, you know, different, different places within Germany are so different. And I, I love that and I found it very enriching and I had a very supportive partner who I mean, never, never complained about me being away or on the road or anything like that. Um, and, I, you know, I think I was sort of like young and, and healthy enough to kind of <laughs> get through whatever stresses that that kind of level of travel put on me but one thing that i felt was so i i traveled a lot from like my mid 20s until my late 20s and mm-hmm. then i found that in my late 20s so when i was 29 i hit a bit of a vocal hurdle where i realized that for this beginning of my career i'd very much been singing like what i on my on my talent, maybe like on my natural talent. And I hadn't been backing that up with a really solid technique and a really solid practice. One of the kind of curses of having a good ear is that you don't need to practice something very much before you've got it memorized. And so Mm -hmm. on the one hand, that meant learning Clorinda in two days so I could jump in was achievable. On the other hand, it means that I only need to Sing through something once or twice before it's the melody is in my mind, and so, I I, I kind of skirted by in my twenties of a little bit of under preparation vocally for things, and then I hit a wall at at the end of my twenties technically, and I really had to rebuild things. Luckily, that coincided with COVID. Well, luckily, I mean, it was COVID was devastating. Obviously, I lost eighteen months of work, but mm. it luckily in the sense that. I was forced to confront that reality uh, because I had nothing to do, like there was no audience to be affirming me, there was no applause, there were no reviews to be like saying like, yes, you're doing a good job. You know, I had to sort of try and find that (laughs) internally. Um, And I, I, with my teacher together, really rebuilt my technique and built it maybe even for the first time in in at least a kind of uh, conscious way. And, uh, and so that, because the freelance work kind of ground to a halt because of COVID, it gave me a stability of being home and practising regularly that when I then emerged from COVID, I was actually in much better vocal shape than I had been going into it. And the f- now considering, you know, I've been working for 10 years and now I'm thinking about going first, it, I, I really see the value in the stability of even just this residence time of being like, on and off sort of eight months with this company this year. The stability of like going to the same practice room every day, even just like, like the, the practice of singing with the same orchestra a few times a week in the same house and getting used to an acoustic and understanding the having stability so that you can actually work on yourself. Like if you're guesting all the time, you're constantly singing in different acoustics. So you, it's mm-hmm. even hard to have like a sense of, wait, what does my voice actually feel like and sound like? Um, mm. And so the stability afforded me here has has seen and uh, has given rise to really like an astronomic growth in my vocal technique, I would say, um, and I think led to me being offered Queen of the Night. I don't know if I would have been ready for that um, before now.
0: Yes, we've come full circle in the last decade. from sight yeah. reading. so weird. It's so weird. You're singing 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 de kernigan in one of the most important viennese houses there is it's amazing <laughs> austria austria loves you clearly <laughs> it's funny yeah <laughs>
2: like i sort of started here and then of course i've guessed it a bit have in austria over the years but like most of my career was sort of germany france italy netherlands and australia and america and then like coming back and finding a sense of home in austria has been really interesting and i love austria i love it culturally here because mm it you know it's german speaking so i feel at home in in that sense because i can communicate very well and also not in, not only in work but also if you go to the doctor or you have to talk to your accountant or something you know like absolutely um, but but it's you know it's it's culturally it's not germany you know it's different it's a bit it's sort of the gate to eastern europe so there's a, a lot of cultural diversity and they have this former court system like french used to be the spoken language here for a while and then italian and so you know there's a there's a really really interesting mix of european um and eastern cultural heritage here which i really appreciate
0: and enjoy yeah Ooh. Mm. And, Ooh. and so you you said oh sorry go jeremy oh. i've been work. <laughs> no
1: that's cool that's cool um <laughs> just on that that you've been everywhere alex you've done you've been to a lot of places sung for a lot of different people with different orchestras sounds tastes you found your home in austria do you think? And, and at the Volksoper, do you think there's a, a quality to your voice, to your personality, to your appearance, to the roles you can play that appeals to the Viennese? Um, and have you found that in other roles, in, in different parts of the world that you've portrayed?
2: Mm, that's an interesting question. I've been told that my voice has a kind of silvery quality that I think is appreciated in the German speaking world I would say like I don't necessarily have a voice um that is a very Italian sound you know maybe I mean I it, it I want to go into that repertoire and I think I can work on it the lot like Lucia and that sort of Donizetti um but I'm definitely not a Puccini sound you know, there there are a couple of Verdi roles that, that I you know that, that work well for me. But yeah, I think there are there are aesthetics and I do feel that I fit well into the German speaking world aesthetic and and then Dutch as well. Um,
0: France? Do you mean sorry, can I just clarify, do you mean vocal aesthetic when you say aesthetic? Or everything like visual as well, or mostly like the, the, the sound aesthetic? visual aesthetic I
2: mean I'm a pretty generic looking medium build white girl (laughs) I don't know (laughs) I I don't know I think
0: you're a babe oh
2: thanks Jess (laughs) no I just mean I don't I don't know if there's anything I mean obviously my career has been I have a huge amount of privilege you know in the way that I look and present and I'm very aware of that um and and I'm conscious that that is certainly something that is easier to work um, when you look like me or like us, you know, um, in, in, in Europe, I would say. Um, that's, you know, a generalization, but there is certainly um, a white privilege is alive and well, you know, in the European opera scene.
0: Oh, yes.
2: But, but when I say aesthetic, I guess, Jeremy, I was answering your question in, in, in only about the vocal aesthetic. Um, I would say, yeah. I, I think gosh it's a, it's a really interesting question. I I have found less success in France and I do think that there's a French female voice style maybe aesthetic style that is less aligned with the way that I perform. Um, but that's very nebulous, like I, I can't really put my finger on it. Maybe that's just me, it's not my group of people. But um, yeah, I, I, I've done better definitely in the German-speaking German sphere, yeah.
1: Mm. And do you think with the roles and experiences or perhaps the training that you, you got in Munich doing your master's, did that help you adjust to the system?
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the, the training in Munich was amazing. Um, it was very industry-focused. It was very, like, they had uh, students and directors and casting directors and agents come and talk to us regularly about, not students, like uh, alumna, alumni um, come and talk to us about the industry. That was amazing to like, kind of peek behind the curtain they frequently put us out into professional experiences. They brought in really high-level directors and conductors to work with us. Um, they created sort of employment placement opportunities for us. Um, and then we had diction, we had spoken German diction training for the stage, which was amazing.
0: Such a gift.
2: Yeah, that was amazing. Helmut um, Becher, Becher was our teacher, and he was incredible. Um, and we had dance classes, for all, all class of waltz, foxtrot, like everything you could imagine, fencing, <laughs> stage fighting. We even did, um, they wanted to give us some additional theatre experience, so they brought an Italian director in to d- direct a 20 minute scene from a Goldoni play that was just an Italian play, like it wasn't musical at all, and we just had to do this scene. And the director didn't speak English or German, only spoke Italian. <laughs> And we, got, me and this other girl, got through it. We got thrown in, and it was just do this Italian play. It was amazing, you know, the
0: level Incredible. of exposure. <laughs>
2: and and of course, what what that did is, and I'm, it's unlikely that I'm going to be cast in an Italian language play, but of course that informed my approach to resset because she was like, of course. she 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 made our Italian idiomatic and helped us understand where emphasis should be in this in the sentence and and the syntax and understanding grammar and that stuff and then that I applied all that learning to the way that I then sing recitative so Munich was a fantastic school I I had a great experience it was tough like it was full-on and there wasn't a lot of time to just practice and work on singing so I think that's something that you should be aware of if you want to go and do a really high level graduate program that's very much industry focused and preparing you kind of vocationally but I I had a great time there for sure
0: that sounds incredible Mm -hmm. and so it was two years that masters yeah
2: yes but I I was so absent because I was guessing all the time that I actually (laughs) we we got to the end of my two years and the head of the school called me in and he was like Alexandra you do not have enough credit points to graduate and I was like oh so (laughs) So I had to come back for a sem- another semester for just one subject, um, yeah. which ironically yes. was was um, stage craft. Like I, that was what I had <laughs> always missed. And so yeah. then i I had to do a, a like a scenes production with the first years, which was really fun and was great. So yeah. yeah. So I did five semesters, so, so two and a half years there.
1: great. and yeah. and so they they were obviously very flexible during during all that time letting you guests and stuff like that. just just so people know i mean if you were in a place like that and let's say you you got a phone call you got an email asking you to do some role what was the process of asking for a a day off
2: so it was often more than a day it was like three months
1: (laughs) (laughs) right that makes sense yes yeah
2: so so i was i guess i i first of all my actual singing teacher was very supportive of this kind of thing so i would first talk to him because he was also the head of voice. So I would talk to him and say, look, I've got this opportunity. Do we think it fits me vocally? Do we think it's good for my development? What will, what will I miss at school? You know, and we would kind of talk it through. And then if I got his approval, then I would put in literally an Ullapschein, which is was great training because that's what we have to do in a theater here. It's a form that you fill out, a formal form, a formal form that you fill out to make a formal (laughs) release request. And um, we had to fill that out with the dates and then it got submitted to the office at the university and then the head of the the whole school would then assess each application and and give either a yes or a no. And lots of people got no's, including me sometimes, you know, and that was okay. Um, But I mostly got all of the releases that I requested. I think it was so funny because they had me back last week to give a seminar, like a career seminar to the students, which was so nice um, and very cathartic. (laughs) And (laughs) one one of the things that I would say, regret is too strong a word, but I think if I had my time again, I maybe would have spent a little bit less time away from school and a little bit more time just being there and studying and having that stability and practicing and honing my craft in a low pressure environment because when I hit that vocal wall at the end of my 20s I I do feel that it's because I started singing professionally so early so much different repertoire on the road all the time without a real bass technique and and I think if I had my time again I maybe would have done a, a couple fewer guest contracts and just focused a bit more and it was so funny because I remember the head of school at the time saying to me he was a Hungarian guy, and he was saying like, you know, Alexandra, if they're asking for you now, they will keep asking for you. And I, of course, coming from Australia and having this scarcity mindset, I was like, no, I have to say yes now. I have to take every opportunity. I have to say yes to everything. And, you know, it was,
0: you know. What if it's the only contract I've ever
2: offered ever? Exactly, exactly. And also like it was hard to say no to the money, to be honest, you know, like mm. you're being offered, you're a student and somebody being offered like, you know, 2,000 euros a night for a, for a role and you're doing it 10 times, you know, and it, mm. <laughs> like it, that like that was, the idea of turning that down was was sort of wild in my mind, you know, but a lot of my European mm. colleagues were just a lot more chill about pursuing professional work and they maybe weren't as, busy as I was immediately out of uni but then they eclipsed me a little bit in that late 20s period where I really should have blossomed and in fact I hit a bit of a wall so I think yeah I I I don't regret any of my early experiences but I I do wonder if I'd taken a little bit of time then to focus more on my development vocally and less on my development career wise maybe I would be even further along now than I currently am
0: you know yeah, that's a really interesting perspective. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, we've all hindsight is twenty twenty, but it's yeah, because I think that's definitely something that any certainly any Australian singer would would take mm. all any and all opportunities that came their mm. way. Because as you say, you know, it's a it's an enormous continent, but we've got one full time opera company. You know, mm. it's there's there's not a lot, unfortunately, to do. Um, I'd like to move along now to. A big question in my own mind, um, and I think it's quite, you know, quite at the forefront of a lot of people's mind. Social media, is it the root of all evil, or is it extremely important as a marketing tool, self-marketing tool? You are, you seem certainly from as a, a person who consumes your social media content. You seem to have a really good grasp on how to use it, and you you do use it quite a lot. Um, do you enjoy that do you do it because you have to do you what's what's your relationship like to to meta basically (laughs) sure yeah
2: well look I I don't I'll 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 sort of preface what I'm about to say by saying this is my anecdotal experience and I can't say blanketly what's right for any individual person you know you social media can be the doom scroll is real and uh, you know that, that you, there can be a really unhealthy way to interact with it. Um, and so I'll just describe my, my personal engagement with it. I have found social media to be really meaningful in several ways. Firstly, like as an expat, living away from home, away from family, away from, especially those early supporters in my career, You know, people back in Oz who supported me, believe in me, friends and family. Um, Social media is a really meaningful way to kind of bulk communicate with them what I'm doing, which is really nice. You know, so my, my voice teacher that I worked with from when I was 12 to when I graduated Melbourne Uni commented today and said, you know, Bravo, you're a brilliant girl, and you know, I'm not I'm definitely not a girly anymore, but like it's so nice that she that she's able to see that and, and we're able to interact in that way. And and that's very meaningful to me. I think like mm. it helps me feel supported because I put something out there, people respond really positively to it, and then I remember my roots, and I you know, I I feel that sense of support around me. So that's one thing that's really nice. And then the other thing that I find really nice and really humbling about social media. Is the times when I have the most views, the most interactions, the most reshares, the most saved stories or reels, is when I post something really honest. So, mm-hmm. like a couple of times, I've posted something where it's been after an audition and it's gone really badly, and I've I've absolutely effed it up, and I've I've been very honest directly to camera, and I've said this was fucking terrible, and you know I feel so embarrassed, and da da, da and I don't know, and I feel like this imposter syndrome, or when I talked about the fact that I didn't really learn how to practice until my late 20s when I had this technical issue and when I was honest about those things on social media I got such meaningful interaction with people people other young singers writing out to me being like thank you for talking about this I also don't really know how to practice and I'm so ashamed and it's like this taboo you know and I feel so stupid to kind of like even suggest it and my teacher shames me about it and you know, so so that's the other side of it is when it's when I'm saying something that's really vulnerable and, and I get other singers reacting to that and saying, me as well, me as well, you know, thank you for being honest about it. So it ticks two boxes for me in that way. I find, for me, the most meaningful and healthy way to use social media is to generate and to not consume. So mm. I... I have a positive interaction when I'm creating something and interacting with people based on that creation. And I tend to have a less positive experience when I'm just consuming other people's content and kind of going through and Mm -hmm. just kind of, oh my God, this soprano got this job. And like, oh God, she's like, you know, two years younger than me. And yet she's worked with these two amazing conductors and like, oh God, look, Mm. she doesn't like have any wrinkles and that kind of toxic, (laughs) all that kind of toxic crap, you know, um, that, that, that can come from comparison, that's when it gets negative. And I, I don't, I'm not saying that I don't do that. Of course I do that as well, but I'm aware of when that's happening and like, okay, let's get back to a healthy way to use the social media, which is using it as a platform for creation and generating and connecting with people. Mm. And I will say I've gotten one job through, through social media. Wow.
1: That's very cool. Um, And was that a a reggie or is a conductor or...? Uh, It was for a recital.
2: Someone contacted me through Instagram.
1: Very nice, very nice. That's very cool. Um, I just wanted to ask on that. That's really, really interesting about uh, social media and we'll we'll get you to send uh, your handle, etc. to put in our episode biog. Um, I would like to ask about comparing oneself Uh, because I had a really interesting experience. Uh, coming over doing auditions. I just wanted your opinion on this, Alex. When I came over, I did auditions. Uh, b- the month before, I I had a phone call with yourself. Um, I think I probably spoke to you or texted you, Jess. I rang a bunch of Australians, mm-hmm. but I also went through the lists of people who were in Yaps that I was trying to get into. And I looked at, like, just strictly baritones, and I went, okay, well, how old are they? How, like, how much has their voice grown? How much of their voice is skill? Um, and and on top of that growth maturity naturally with you know just hormones and growing up and your voice growing, I found it a really positive experience. it's it was kind of eye-opening and a bit crap at the beginning because I like put a, a I got an Excel spreadsheet together and I put down a bunch of links of baritones in these students like oh my God, I have to be good but oh, wow. I, yeah it, it, it was very confronting and I looked at it and okay okay, in my area for this I need to improve and they're doing this and that's actually right. And I should be doing that because you're in a bit of a, it's a bit insular in Australia. Like it's on the other side of the world, just the natural sort of beast. But basically I wanted to ask you, when is it for you positive, if ever, to compare yourself to to other sopranos uh, in, in your far, for example?
2: Yeah, it's a very good question. And I think we should first address what we mean by compare. Right. Mm. So, do you mean you're actively looking to see what it is that you are lacking, you know, and sort of like seeking to expose yourself to maybe not what you're lacking, but what you maybe could improve on? And you're seeking uh, alternative ideas or alternative ways to approach that so that you can be inspired and try and address those things, you know, which I think can be really healthy. Like, I'm very inspired by the way that. Lissette Oropeza sings, you mm. know, for example, and I love listening oh, to her. And her when I, right, and when I like, quote unquote, compare myself to her, I'm not like, oh gosh, she has this thing that I don't have, I'm, you know, boo hoo me. It's more like, wow, look at what she's doing by spinning her air in this way or Mm. by, you know, loosening her jaw in this way and, like, how can I approach that? So I think that that can be really healthy, you know, looking at what other singers are doing really well and looking at how can I emulate or how can I be inspired by that or how can I tap into that? I think sometimes where it can get negative is with, like, casting, you know? So, like, if you see that someone's been cast in something that you maybe auditioned for and you didn't get or something like that that can be really toxic because so much goes into casting that is out of your control and 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 I think that it's very easy like what I was saying just before like oh god this soprano you know she's two years younger than me and she's already sung at like two more important houses than I have like that sort of stuff because ultimately like you you are the only person you're competing against is yourself right like you can the only thing that you can do is be the best that you can be based on the material that you have and what's in your what's in your mind and what's in your throat you know and so you're not really competing with that other girl who got that job because she got that for some specific reason and you didn't get that for some specific reason and it might not necessarily be because she's objectively better than you maybe she is maybe she isn't but I think that it's important in these competitive, in these comparison moments to remember that, yeah, that your your only your only competition is yourself. And if you use comparison to look at how you can improve, that's healthy. And that's where it's like individually listening to a recording and like you what you were saying, Jeremy, maybe like, okay, this person is doing this in that passage, which is great, and I should look at that. But comparing casting decisions, I think is 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 where it can get a little bit toxic. I will say that one very, very important skill set that you need to develop as a singer, particularly as a young singer trying to build a career, is a very, very good ear and a very healthy sense of self-criticism. So many singers are out there and they sing in an audition and they don't get the job or they sing in a competition and they don't go through and they're like, totally incredulous you know that that happened they think that there's some conspiracy theory against them you know <laughs> and 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 that comes from insecurity and an in, an inability to look at like okay what what is lacking in in me what what is what is it in my sound why why am i not doing well in auditions i mean there isn't always a concrete answer to this but just even outside of audition outcomes just what is it in my sound that can improve what is it in my presentation that can improve and that requires a lot of humility and and, and oral intelligence. And that's something that definitely we should develop at an early age. Like have a very good sense of how good you are, where you can improve, what you're really good at, you know, what maybe makes you stand out and where you think you sit in the milieu. I think there are a lot of singers that think that they're a little bit better than they are and then they are very disappointed all the time. And, and that, of course, that that's not growth mindset. Growth mindset is always looking at, like, where's the improvement spectrum? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Do you record all of your rehearsals and coachings and things on your I, – I presume you have an iPhone. Do you record everything and listen back to most of it? It's not possible to listen back to everything, but is that something not, that – the sort of thing you do?
2: Yeah, not everything. Um, I I'll definitely try to record – like a key rehearsal so like Mm. a final stage orchestral or a general rehearsal for sure and you know throughout a run of a show I'll try to record maybe my aria like I'll try to record it or something like that halfway through just to like check in with like how things are going I definitely record Mm. all my lessons um Mm. uh, because I find that's just helpful even just in my own practice to kind of have something to practice along with but, yeah, I definitely consult recordings a lot because they're they they they're such a gift. Like, they can teach you so much, especially in, like, I have a lot of facial tension and lip tension when I sing. And I just don't feel that and I'm not aware of it when I'm doing it. And I see a video yeah. and I'm like, oh, my God, look at that weird <laughs> mouth shape I just did, you know? Or look at my, my finger twitches when I sing high notes. Super weird, you know? <laughs> like, I would not know that if it hadn't been for videos. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I definitely and, – and I would say – on this spectrum of, of self-awareness, I, I tend to be a little bit too critical. Like after the O'Happé, the, the orchestral stage rehearsal last week, I was super unhappy because I thought it sounded really shrill and I thought it was really bad. And then one of the colleagues sent me a recording that they made and it was actually like so much better than I thought it was. And that's important for me as well. I tend to... Doom spiral a little bit about things, and they're often not as bad as I think they are. And I think that's because that's my, that's my own baggage, and that's my ego's way of like, trying to hold me back from really committing and putting myself out there. It's like the whole thing. <laughs> we can call my therapist for the next <laughs> podcast to kind of unpack that. But but yeah, like I I, th- I think recordings actually help me feel more confident about about things. Or like I remember, <laughs> at, the, at the premiere, I. I have my I come out my character doesn't sing until the second half of the show my very first note I cracked on that because I was like I was like warming up in my room like waiting for an hour and a half and then I come out I have to sing Fenton and I was like Fenton (laughs) my first (laughs) note of the whole night and I and I was obviously devastated and then I spoke to my colleague afterwards and she was like she was like, no, no, because there's this big sforzando in the orchestra in that moment where you first sing that note and then the orchestra goes out and you start to do this decrescendo. And she was like, we, we didn't hear anything because the orchestra was still on their sforzando. So there are just like little yes. things like that of, you know.
0: <laughs> so <laughs> one like, time the orchestra drowning out the singer was so useful. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I think, yeah, recording or having good sets of ears in the house that you trust is, is definitely mm. uh, a resource. Definitely a resource, yeah.
0: That's amazing. Um,
2: I will okay, say maybe yeah. that some some voices don't record as well as others. Like some voices mm. aren't captured well by microphones. Um, like yes. I I know particularly, um, you know someone that's really close to me who sounds phenomenal live and has so much like ping and formant and and like rah like amazing sound but in recording that the beauty of that doesn't doesn't um come across as as much and so this person doesn't tend to do well in like the first round of audition applications for like a competition say because they might they sound much much better live so that's also a reality and that Mm -hmm. that just kind of sucks and that's you know again experience like make sure you can find a good room where like space influences the sound so much you know
1: Mm, I think automatically, too, when there's a video uh, and you're watching, like, a friend sends you a video um, or you get sent a video of yourself, you're automatically critical of it because we're so focused, I think, on things like audition tapes. Like you said, for comps, Alex, and, like, even getting an audition sometimes for studios. Like, all of my studio auditions that I had are now uh, pre-screening video, and I was quite shocked about that. So I guess we probably... I guess, put on ears that are more critical for that.
2: Are you asking if you should listen to yourself more critically for application videos?
1: Oh, I mean, like, I I think just... I just wanted to point out, like, that generally... I think when we get a video, like, that's done with an iPhone or in a house or um, of you performing, you generally are more self-critical of it, aren't you? When you listen back.
2: Well, it's interesting. It's it's interesting. I I don't know. I mean, I, I... I think that some are and some aren't. I think mm. that some singers are hypercritical to the point where, like, so often I'll listen back to a recording, and I'm like, "Oh, That's terrible," and then I'll listen a month later, and I'm like, "Oh, it's fine," and it's
0: because right. immediately, I... <laughs> Jesse, I'm laughing. Sorry, I'm laughing because I'm like, that isn't me every day. <laughs> <laughs> but truly, and I
2: listen to it with the distance of that, honestly, like a month, and I'm like, "Oh my gosh, this is." much more objectively okay than, than, I, than I thought it was because immediately after the recording, I'm too in my head about what went right and what went wrong and like, you know? And so in fact, in fact, when you are doing audition application videos, it's really helpful if you can get your recordings done like super well in advance, so that when you're making that decision about which take to send, you're not listening to it with the ears of the person who just sang that and is already hypercritical. Like, I think that's a really helpful thing. Um, I have then, to send some recordings to an important company and they want them, you know, by the end of June or something like that. And I'm going to try and make them now because I want to have distance yes. from from it when I when I come back to yes. judge it with my own ears. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. And, then and I the think... stress that comes with, oh, it's due in 12 hours, you know, like, you're not going to be able <laughs> yeah. to listen to it you properly. Don't do that. Yeah. No. Yeah,
2: and then the other side of that is potentially what what I was saying before about singers who who haven't developed a strong sense of self criticism and that mm. listen to their recordings and they can't they, they aren't able to assess what's working or what what's not working or, or 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 something like that or maybe even putting a recording out there that that is subpar and that they shouldn't put out there mm. you know because they aren't able to be self critical so I think there's a big spectrum it just depends on your personality and your exposure level yeah. Mm.
1: Can I, can I just jump in and ask you another question? Since we were just talking about social media and now we're talking about recordings, which are uh, in, particularly in the early part of a career and, and for all young artists now, we have to do self-tapes of some kind. What is your, I, I, I consume your, your social media, Alex, um, but I have been a bit inactive lately. Tell us about what you do about putting your recordings up of whether it be a snippet in a practice room or, you know, you get an excerpt sent that's been a professional recording and you you decide to repost that. How do you feel about that? And how do you see other singers interacting with their own recordings on their own social media?
2: Yeah, I mean, videos of me singing are definitely the things that perform the best. Like that's definitely the most interesting content. Like that's what people wanna hear, especially something that's like 25 seconds, you know. I find very rarely will people listen to a whole aria, like three minutes, very rarely, on social media. They are listening to the first 30 seconds or so. So because of that, I'm I'm disinclined to post a full aria um, or something like that, I'm, I'm more likely to post an excerpt. I'm also very, uh, like, as, when I was younger, I put all kinds of trash on YouTube, you know? And as I, as I get older, like, I, I am more selective about what I put out there. I haven't uploaded a video to YouTube, not publicly. I mean, I have lots of unlisted videos for like applications and stuff, but I haven't put something public on YouTube for a long time because I'm just conscious of um, wanting to control the image of what's out there. And I also wasn't a good critical listener a few years ago and I put some videos on it and actually for my agent at the time being like, Alex, this is not like a great recording. You should kind of maybe take it down. You actually seeing better than this now. It's like oh you know mm. so so I think I I'm selective about what I post I mean I'm not I'm not selective in like I'm not trying to you know cultivate and an, a false image of what I sound like or something like that um and I I happily post me cracking or making a mistake or something you know in a rehearsal or something like that absolutely but I yeah I I if I do post something it's probably a little clip or something fun or me discovering a high note or something like that,
0: something kind of novel, Mm. yeah. Yes, and for all of the the type A singers out there, all the perfectionists, I've never in my life been to a professional performance where even the biggest star has not had at least one cracked note. So I I loved what you just said about posting, cracking a note here and there as well. It's, you know, we're human after all. And it's, yeah, yeah, it's something that we, we can't forget.
2: Coming coming to terms with, and not only accepting, but embracing cracking, I think is also a mm. healthy thing. Like, you know, mm. one of the biggest crackers of the 20th century was Mosaa Kabaye. She cracked all mm. the time because mm. she was constantly taking the risk of doing those tiny, high pianissimi. And that's what's oh. going to happen. Like, if you take that mm. risk and you you choose that vulnerability, and you choose to walk that tightrope. Tightrope. Of course, mm. some people are gonna—you're gonna crack sometimes. Like there might be some like dust in the air, or like whatever yeah. it is, you know. But it's for me. I I will hear a thousand cracks, but then I could hear one like devastatingly stunning pianissimo. And I Absolutely. remember watching recently. or oh, more recently. I guess it was in COVID. I have like no sense of time. I guess it was like last year. Yes. Or months Ago. Um yeah. Sandra was rehearsing in Aida in Paris and I was in like one of the last rehearsals, like this, the last stage generals, not the final press rehearsal, but an ultimate press rehearsal. And she she was going for all these high me which was so impressive in Aida. And mm-hmm. um, and you know, one of them she just did a big old crack on. And yeah. she 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 slapped her thigh and she like pointed the conductor like and shrugged, you know, she was like, Oh well, I'll go for it. And because at first she cracked and I was like <gasps> no. <laughs> you know? and, and then like, yeah, my um, around it was fine you know and it's like yeah. Like she can, I'm cracking as many times she wants so she's taking risks and she's doing something exciting you know and so yeah. so I I really like normalizing I mean I don't expect audiences necessarily to understand it like non musical audiences no. but like definitely amongst us to normalize a bit of a crack around then
0: gotcha yeah. yeah 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 absolutely because I mean you know if you if you I used to, I don't know if this is because of what I was taught or what I told myself, which is uh, probably a lot more likely, I'd say I created this one in my head, but uh, I used to think, you know, if you made a mistake or you cracked or something, like it would be over, people wouldn't take you seriously because, you know, but I mean, you know, I I just, I had a crack in a quite important competition semi-final a few months ago, and I apologized to the adjudicators afterwards. And I said, look, apart from that, you know, do you have any other feedback? And they all said, oh, no, none of, we didn't care about that you were you know you were making this lovely color and whatever da, da, da. and i was like holy shit yeah no one cares, yeah. you know
2: yeah it's so it's interesting really- like we 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 think that perfection is what's going to get us across the line but it's actually mm. the opposite of perfection it's that risk taking and that decision to be vulnerable and which is artistically moving that's going that's going to make people yeah. sit up and listen to you and if that means that like i have cracked several times in competitions and thought oh my god that's it and like no nope, through to the final i remember i remember yeah, wow. um in the royal overseas league i in the semi final of that i was singing manon's aria which i know really well and the first half of the at the end of the second half of the recitative at the beginning it, it modulates in a different way than it does in the first half and mm. i got to the second half and i kept singing the wrong modulation and then poor Chad, Vinden on the piano, was like coming in with the chord, like knowing it was going to be wrong. Yeah. Like well, wrong for me, yeah. you know. And then I was like, oh, sorry, Chad, can we take that again, please? And we did it again. I did the wrong modulation again. And <laughs> then I was, and then I was like, Chad, can you please um, can you please play, can you please play me the melody? And he was like, yes, I can. And he played it for me. And I was like, thank you. Did it again, got it right. And I went out and I was like, well, bloody hell. An hour later, I got yeah. a call through the, through the final. Yeah. You know, yeah. like because that didn't matter in the context of, I guess, how well I did the rest of the aria or something like that. Maybe they even found it endearing. I mean, who knows, you know?
0: Yeah. 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 Mm. No, that's brilliant. Um, Okay, well, we're sort of coming close-ish to the end of time, but I did have a question about the business. So you've been around for about a decade. Have you noticed any changes in that time because I, So one, to put this in context, one of the reasons why Jeremy and I have started this podcast is that there's a lot of really great, really valid, important information that is given to young singers on the ground in Australia, but there is so much that gets out of date really quickly. That's no one's fault. It's a huge island at the bottom of the earth, you know, and it's, you know, most working Australian musicians are on this side of the equator and that's just factual. So, Is there anything, like, have you noticed any changes? And also, is there anything about the industry that you like struggle with on a moralistic, from a moralistic point of view or things, something you wish you could change, you know, if once you become super famous and you become the next Sandra Radvinovsky and you're queen of the world, is there (laughs) something you would change? Mm.
2: Oh, that was like so many questions. Let me think. Have I had, so I'll answer Answer the first one first. Have I felt that the industry has changed in the 10 years that I've Mm. been in it? Mm -hmm. Definitely. However, I've also gotten older and had more experience. So I don't know. It's hard for me to be able to tell if the industry has changed, like on a fundamental basis, or if I am just operating in a different level of the industry and, and operating at a different level of professionalism. So I'm just having a different experience. But the thing yeah. that I will, I I will say that I I feel has changed is I get much less sexual harassment since Me Too, much less, like I love basically that. zero, which is we love that, Phenomenal. you know, we love that the liberties that colleagues took with me pre Me Too, I think, I what Me Too did for me was it it helped denormalize how much sexual harassment was occurring, like I think it had become so regular and so mm. normal. Every single job I did, oh, are you guys there? Oh, I lost you for a second.
0: Hang on, so yes, I, I, you, first, you said it, it had become so regular, sexual harassment?
2: Yeah, it had it become happens. so regular, like every guest job that I did from when I started in Europe until me too, there was at least one time where I felt unsafe and whether that was just from being chatted up to being all the way to being like assaulted, you know, like the whole spectrum, every single job. I'm so sorry. Well, I appreciate that. I think it's so crazy how standardised it was and how I had internalised that like that it was just normal that that was what it was like to operate as a young person in opera space Mm. and not just young women you know young 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 men and Mm. and all kinds of young people in those spaces and not just young people like my goodness you know it was happening to everyone and so my what me too did is it it just brought accountability into the space and it also normalized boundary setting so Mm. whereas previously if i had tried to establish boundaries with a colleague. I would have been made to feel like a prude or a diva or something like that. Now it's like, oh, that's normal, you know, for me to say, like, I'd appreciate if we, you know, if you didn't touch me in that way. That's now normal to say that. And I also feel like people people are just afraid of consequences. So they, I can, I can see it. There are those moments when you feel like it's about to happen, when a colleague's about to say something inappropriate or maybe about to touch you or maybe about to, I don't know, stereo cleavage for a little bit too long or whatever it is Mm -hmm. and they they stop themselves you know because they they know that Mm -hmm. there's consequences now and so that that's probably for me the biggest change that i've felt in the industry has been the how freeing me too has been for me and the the irony is like a lot of people complain about like oh you know there's too many boundaries now and everything's so pc and you can't be creative but like for me the opposite is true now that i feel safe in the workplace I can be so much more creative, so much more free. I'm actually more open to develop chemistry with especially male colleagues on stage and have a laugh and have a beer and go out after and, you know, be chummy and have a hug or something. I feel more comfortable to do that now than I did before because now we all kind of have a consensus on, like, where the line is, you know. And and so that, that's that been a huge, a huge shift for me. Um, Music in terms,
0: to
2: my ears. yeah. In terms of what what has changed, like what what Australians maybe could be, how we could continue to be like updated about musical practice, I guess in in Australia maybe. I, I, it's hard for me to say. I mean, I think there is some. Like, I remember when I got to uni in Munich, and my lead professor was like, okay. Immediately stop rolling all of your R's in lead. What do you sound like Hitler? Like, what are you doing? You know? Because wow. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you know, He <laughs> was like, yeah. no. But I don't know if that's like blanketly true, you know, across all practice in Australia. And and certainly I had teachers that I think my senior teacher didn't roll her R's. It was just something that some coach had told me at a certain point. But I don't know if that's an Australian thing or just an anecdotal experience of my own. And there is a strong lead practice in Australia. So, yeah, it's a tricky one to answer. I think there's a lot of experimentation in the form in in Europe, like, for example, art song recital. Um, is there's a lot of really boundary pushing stuff happening in, in Europe outside of like what a Schubert recital should look like or what a Schumann art song with album looks like, um. And I feel like we can lean into embracing boundary pushing in the Australian classical sphere as well. Like what a master's recital should look like, it can look non traditional. You know these sort of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, like I don't, I don't necessarily feel, um particularly well-equipped to to comment on that in, in, in any kind of meaningful way, other than my own
0: anecdotes, I have to say, yeah. Okay, so the second part of that preamble was, is there anything in the industry that you you struggle with and something you'd love to see change? So you've talked about Me Too, which is brilliant, but is there anything else that sort of you wish was a bit different about the opera industry? Like, you know, working freelance or, or um or fest you you get your as a soloist you get your schedule the day before is that something you you know make peace with you think is fine um for example i mean yeah i just when i think about that and i compare it to literally every other industry that exists you know you sort of think how do people with families deal with this with dependents be they you know i don't know or parents they need to look after or something you know that can make it pretty tricky um Mm. so some is there anything on that along that line of thinking that you would be willing to to chat about?
2: Yeah, I don't have, I don't particularly have an issue with the way that the rehearsal schedule is done. I think that I can't, the director has to be able to decide day by day what scenes need more work and what scenes need to be developed. And you can't, you can do your best to schedule that to within an inch of its life but the reality is in the rehearsal room one scene is going to take a week to put together and and you know that needs to be the case so the the rehearsal hours at the folksop are actually quite good so it's ten to one and then five to eight and so it's actually really nice because the whole afternoon is open for you to go to your doctor's appointment or do your groceries or whatever do a, um, podcast, yeah. do a podcast, Do a podcast, exactly, yeah. Um and then in the evening, they're five till eight, it's that that's also then not too late because you know you're getting home at 8 30 and it's not too late to have dinner, you could still maybe put your kids to bed if you wanted to, or something like that. So I quite like the setup here. I'm used to ten till two, two to ten, which is mm-hmm. much more tiring because I find if you finish mm-hmm. at ten o'clock at night and you have to be back at the theater at ten in the a.m. Oh, yeah you know, that,
0: that's what we had in Dresden as well, was, Yeah. yeah which
2: is that's i i don't like that as much i prefer this this system but um in terms of like gosh what i would change for me i really feel that the industry lacks the a a proper sense of like a union you know to represent Mm. freelance artists and guest art soloists needs like the the chorus are so well represented by unions the orchestras all yeah. of the administrative staff, you know, they have these yeah. advocates that are out there. And I think it's so hard in the soloist world to develop a, a sense of union because, first of all, it, it's t- totally borderless, you know. So, like, today I'm working in Austria, next week I'm working in Berlin and, you know, like, like there's no national boundaries around this industry that where we could say okay broadly speaking this is the cultural value set within which we'd like to establish a union so that doesn't exist and then even if you are stable in one nation you know in a rehearsal room like i mean this this merry wives of windsor we're doing our lead is german our second lead is scottish our other lead is austrian then we've got american austrian french german australian uh English, uh Dutch, you know, like, and there's such a broad set, even within the cast, of cultural values, of maybe what's appropriate yeah. or what 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 we what we cherish or what we dislike, and, and even within us is even within the same like young people, it's it's can be different. And so it's so hard to establish a sense of core values that we would then want mm. to be represented by a union. And so that's something that I feel, gosh how amazing would it be if we had, um, you know, collective bargaining, <laughs>
0: yeah, for oh for gosh.
2: for fees. If there was trans, yeah. I wish there was more transparency about fees. There's Absolutely. no transparency about fees, and I remember getting my agent asking for a higher fee for me because for, I was seeing the lead role in an Italian opera, and the house said this is far above what we would ever pay anyone. And if we paid Alexandra that, she'd be getting paid 50% more than any other members of the cast and that's impossible. So we agreed to what they offered and moved on. I happened to become good mates with a baritone in the cast who was singing a sm- much smaller role than me and we were open about fees and he was getting paid like 25% more than me. You know, so they just li- They just fully lied to us, you know. And, oh, and if we were unionised so nice. and we had collective bargaining agreements, and, like that wouldn't happen. So... <sighs> That in an ideal world, that would be something that would evolve. I don't necessarily see it happening. I think the industry is like many, many, many different little villages that are kind of trading ports that are trying to work together. And there's too much diversity. I mean, mm. the, the, too much. The diversity is fantastic, but it is exists in such a way that it would be almost impossible to unionize. But that's what that's what I would wish for. <laughs>
1: Great. So we just had one more question, Alex, and we're going to ask this to everyone at the end of the podcast uh, as we get towards the end of every episode with an artist. Basically, what are you saying to young artists, Antipodeans who are looking to make the big move over in a year, five years time, six years time, whether they're at the beginning of a degree towards the end of a degree in Australia, wherever that progression is, what are you saying to them if you only had five minutes?
2: Start to learn the language of the place you're going to, not necessarily because it will change um, your casting or professional outcomes, but because it will make your life easier uh, in that place. It will make you feel less foreign. It will make it easier to make friends and connect with people and be taken seriously and feel that you have a place. So that I would say invest in that. Figure out where your... Um, sort of areas of development are in your technique and address them and figure out what your strengths are and lean into those. So don't worry about picking repertoire that fits into a perfect fach box. Pick things that you sing really well that show you in the best light. And even if that means that you have two pieces that are super contrasting or I just really don't feel that that matters. I mean, in this fach system here, in this fest system, I'm singing so many different fachs, you know, and recently, Lynz just put out an ad for, okay, for a baritone and the roles that they want the baritone to do are totally diverse, you know, not one fach. So I would say make sure that your audition packet shows you off really well I'll, I'll rather than trying to squeeze yourself, yourself into yeah, a certain so fach position. Use, I would say use your time at university and or those times immediately after university to really figure out, what you are good at and what speaks to you what is the poetry that moves you what is the what are the composers that move you what are the what's the material that you connect with like that should be the answer to what repertoire you should be singing and what you should be putting in auditions because fundamentally like that's what's going to read as authentic and that's what's going to make you interesting artistically um, I feel like we spend so much time trying to push ourselves into a kind of cookie cutter space and um, it's much more interesting to look at what makes you different and what makes you, you. I've had success in my career because I've been able to be authentic to what I care about, which is maybe the more theatrical side of opera performance and that's what has made me get hired a lot and I think that that kind of authenticity is definitely the best way to serve yourself moving forward in your career
0: okay so alex thank you so much this has been absolutely fascinating uh where can we find you on social media website etc
2: my social media is alexandra flood soprano uh at no wait at alexandra soprano um yes my face my facebook is my facebook page is just alexandra flood if you just search that in facebook uh, my website is alexandra-flood.com, dash, like mm-hmm. hyphen sign. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, and, uh, yes, was that everything you asked?
0: <laughs> I think, it, yeah, I think so. I think that's everything. Um, thank you so much. We've loved chatting to you and we've found... Your insight's really, really, really fascinating. Thank you so much for listening to So You Think You Can Belto. We thank the artists who have donated their time to make this information available to our
1: audience. Be sure to subscribe to the show on your favourite podcast platform and follow us on social media. Our handles and links are in the episode description.
0: If you have a topic you'd like covered, a question you'd like answered or you'd like to recommend a guest, please get in touch with us at so you Think you Can Belto at gmail.com.
1: You can also support us with a little donation which will go towards thanking our interviewed artists.
0: Ciao a tutti!
1: Ciao!